I'm going to read for us Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the, grace, the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Let's pray for God to help us to understand his word. Father in heaven, we ask that you would please be with us now, and we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. We pray that you would be our teacher and our instructor. We pray that as this passage is being opened up and as we are looking at it, that, that you would bring these things to our minds and then through our minds to our hearts, to our very souls, that your divine eternal truth would resonate in our hearts, be planted in our hearts, and would bear fruit in our lives, changing us and transforming us and helping us that we might be the people that your word is calling us to be, that we might experience you in ways that would even surprise us. Father, you are powerful. You are God. And we need you in our lives. We need you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. We need you throughout the week. We need you in our challenges and our struggles. We need you in our exhaustion as well as in our times of joy. We need you present with us. And we need what your word has to offer us. And so please write it on our hearts. Please work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I'd like you to sit here for a moment. And I would like you to think about yourself, and I'm going to ask you some questions, and I'd like you to evaluate yourself as I ask you these questions or, or bring this up. And what I, what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself, I'm going to give you four sort of words, and I want you to ask yourself, do these words define me? Is this the dominant thing in my life? As, as I think about me and as I think about my soul and I think about who I am as a person, and as other people view me, are these things dominant in my life? Do they sort of define me in some ways? Okay, you ready? I set that up pretty cool, didn't I? Now you ready? Here it comes. Joy. Joy. Does joy define you? Is joy dominant in your life? Hope, hope. Thirdly, gratitude or thanksgiving. Gratitude or thanksgiving. Does this define you? Is this dominant? Is this what oozes out of you? Joy, hope, gratitude. And the fourth one is this, love for God. Love for God. Jesus said the number one commandment is to love God with all your heart. Does love for God define you? Does it dominate in your life? 
are these four things, joy, hope, gratitude, love for God, are they like wonderful rivers that flow through your heart constantly, refreshing your soul? Is that, is that, what, is that what dominates you? Is that what defines you? Is that what sort of pours out of you? Or are you, as many people are today, the words that actually would better define them and dominate them are busyness, worry, complaining, anger, despair. You see, Paul is working very hard, and, and not just Paul. I use that phrase, Paul, the author of Ephesians, is working hard. But the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul's writings. This is the eternal word of God. And so we could say in this sense, God is working hard. The Holy Spirit is working hard. That these things would be very real and implanted within us and be dominant and be defining. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Paul, as it were, and the Holy Spirit through him, trying to work this into the Ephesians' lives, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk practically on how these things could work out in our own lives, how we can make joy, hope, gratitude, love for God, those things be dominant in our lives. So let's begin and look at this text that is before us. And this text, actually, uh, and I didn't read the whole text, uh, which would be 1 through 13, this text is actually a large digression. It's a digression. Paul actually loses, he doesn't lose his train of thought, but he, he writes 13 verses and then he gets back to his train of thought. For instance, if you look at the text, it begins in verse 1 by saying this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, and you'll notice in the New King James, there's then a dash there. And the dash is pointing to the fact that he actually doesn't get back to his train of thought until verse 14. So if you look at verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees. So he said, for this reason in verse 3, and then he digresses, and then he gets back in verse 14, for this reason, and then he introduces one of the greatest uh, prayers that is in all of Scripture. I actually have a, a dear mentor of mine who said he couldn't preach on the book of Ephesians until he grasped that prayer at the end of Ephesians, and, and I feel his same trepidation as we move toward that. But here's this digression. But as, as the Holy Spirit is directing Paul in his thinking, this digression is very important and it's very, very rich. And really, you could say this, this, the digression has to do with Paul as an apostle, and then it has to do with the message that he has been given to the Gentiles. So that'll kind of give you a framework of what we're looking at here. And, and, and we can actually say this, Paul, the most unlikely apostle to the Gentiles. That's what actually is true. Because if you look at verse 1, it says this. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. That's actually, that, that may seem like a pretty generic phrase. That's actually an astronomically amazing phrase. Because of who we know Paul to have been. When he was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a very highly driven, motivated Pharisee, he dedicated his life. He was the up-and-coming, most important rabbinical student in Jerusalem at the time, studied under Gamaliel, was top of all of his class, was the chief uh, man who was moving forward, and nobody, nobody hated the name of Jesus Christ more than Saul of Tarsus. He hated the gospel, he hated Christians, and he beat them, 
He jailed them. He oversaw their death. He destroyed churches. He was a madman. And that's what you piece together in some of the passages that Chris read for us earlier. This was who he was. He was an absolutely nasty, insane man, and you wouldn't want to have been around him. In fact, he describes himself that way. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul writes this. He says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, and by that he means he blasphemed the name of the very Son of God, Jesus himself. He hated the name of Jesus. He, he got angry when anybody spoke it. He got angry when he found out that anybody believed in him, and he wanted to destroy that name. Secondly, he was a persecutor. He jailed, he beat, he imprisoned, he did all kinds of things, including uh, oversaw the execution of Christians. And then thirdly, he uses this phrase, he was an insolent man. Now, you probably didn't use that word this week, and you may not even know what that word means. But it's actually a powerful word. Listen to it. Listen to its definition. An insolent man is one who, uplifted with pride, he's an arrogant person, who uplifted with pride either heaps insulting language upon others. See, it's one thing to be proud. It's another thing to be so arrogant and so wickedly arrogant that you insult other people around you because they're not as great as you are. Either heaps insulting language upon others or does them some shameful act of wrong. So this is a, a, a form of arrogance a form of, of bitch being wicked and nasty and evil because you're right, everybody's wrong, and you're arrogant, and you're going to make them all pay for not agreeing with you. And Paul said, I was formerly this man. And then in the next verse, he says this, and the grace of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Now notice this, but I got grace from the Lord with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This arrogant, mean, nasty person experienced God's grace. So then he goes on to say this. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I am chief, okay? Now, one thing we have to understand about Paul. Paul, before he was saved... In his arrogance, he was turning all of his wrath and anger against primarily Jewish people who had turned to follow Jesus. But you have to understand that there was another aspect of Saul of Tarsus that would have been absolutely true, and that would have been his utter disdain for Gentiles. Paul was, was what he considered to be blameless. He was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, a, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was blameless. He was more zealous than everybody else. This is how he described himself in Philippians 3. And he would have had an utter disdain for Gentiles. They were the outsiders. They were the dogs. They were apart from God. They were sinners. And he would have spent his life avoiding them. He would have spent his life trying to stay away from them. And if he had any contact with them at all, if he had to buy something from a Gentile, he would be careful not to touch him. And if he did accidentally touch that Gentile, he would go home and he would wash himself so that all of that filth and that stench from, from being in touch with a dog, an outsider, one who's accursed of God, he, he wanted them out of his life. And then he experiences this grace and mercy. And then in verse 16, he says this, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, 
Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering patience as a pattern for those who were going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul was so transformed by the grace of Christ, and Paul was given a, mess, a mission. Your job is to be the uniquely appointed apostle to the Gentiles. You're to bring the gospel to them. That's your primary job. And Paul so embraced this that he saw suffering as a part of that, and he was willing to suffer. So again, go back to verse 1. Notice what it says. For this reason I, Paul, formerly Saul, the prisoner suffering chains, he's actually chained at this point to a Roman soldier, chained a prisoner of Christ Jesus, whom I hated and blasphemed, and now I love more than life itself, for you Gentiles. And so here he begins to talk about the fact that he is an unlikely apostle, but that he now has a message a message in a ministry to Gentiles. And what's his message to the Gentiles? Well, in this section, his message is this. Number one, God is working out this great, amazing master plan. And number two, you Gentiles are in the plan. You have been blessed. You Ephesian Christians are Gentiles who have been blessed to be in the plan. So let's look at this. Verse two, he goes on to say this, and this is where the digression begins. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now, you all know I love the New King James, but this verse just drives me bonkers, okay? And it's because they use the word dispensation. Number one, most of us don't have any clue what that word means. Number two, uh, it is associated with a view of eschatology, uh, dispensationalism, which doesn't have anything, anything to do with this verse at all, so that confuses people. So let me explain what this word is because Paul uses it a lot. It's the word that actually can have two, two meanings that are attached. It can either mean a plan, an arrangement, or, or, or something like that, a plan that, that is working out, and it's used by that, you have that in Ephesians, or it can be used of the person who is the responsibility of working out the plan and making and bringing the plan about. The word actually meant somebody who oversaw the estate of a wealthy person. And so that's who this, and so think of this, if somebody was to oversee the, the wealthy of a state of another person, he was in charge of running that estate, the wealthy person would say to him, this is what I want done with these crops, with this money, with these buildings, this is what I want built over here, and that person was to make it happen. So this word could be translated either, if you, it, to help you understand it, it's either the blueprint or it's the foreman who's supposed to do the blueprint. That's what the word means. And so some of your Bibles may say plan here. They may say uh, responsibility. They may say that that's what it means. If you have heard and hear, the word is used of the responsibility that Paul has been given, the, the important role that he has to send the gospel out to the Jews. I'm sorry, to the Gentiles. And that's what he means. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, Gentiles, okay? Then what is this, this plan? What is this dispensation? Verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Now, revelation, of course, uh, you know, he's saying God came to me, Saul of Tarsus, with a revelation. And, of course, the first revelation was what Chris read. He sees Jesus Christ, whom he is persecuting. He sees the person that he hates, most of all in this world, the name, the person, that, that imposter, that liar, 
Jesus of Nazareth, that know-nothing carpenter from Nazareth who claimed to be the very Son of God, he sees him in all of his glory. And it's the last thing he sees for three days because he's blinded. He sees him, and he says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so he has a revelation that Jesus is actually all who he claimed to be. He had continuing then revelation through his life. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about actually going to the third heaven. In, 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 in Acts 22 that Chris read, he talks about being in a, almost, they use the word trance, which is another bad translation. But he, he was having vision. Paul received unique revelation. He received insight into, now notice the word here, into the mystery, the mystery. And that's a very common word as well that Paul uses. But again, we tend to use the word mystery as something that I don't understand. It goes beyond my ability to comprehend. And there is a sense of that because he uses this, this word again in verse 8 where he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. But actually, the way the word is being used here is not something that is incomprehensible. It's something that God planned before the foundation of the world and kept secret. He's going to use that word. I'm going to show you this in a second. This, it was a secret, and now God is revealing it, and he revealed it to Saul of Tarsus saying, listen, my, this Jesus is my son, and now I'm sending the gospel forth, and the Gentiles are included in. And that's what Paul is saying. So notice what he says in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, and then he says this, as I have briefly written already, and he's, he has already written about this, and we're going to see this in a few seconds here, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. God gives me a mystery, I write it down, you read it, and you understand the mystery then, and you understand my knowledge of the mystery. Verse 5 which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. This is that idea of it. It, was, it was held secret. It was in the secret counsel of God. As it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now that is a direct tie-in to what Paul said earlier when he talked about the fact that the church, look at chapter 2 and verse 20, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay? And so Paul is saying this, God had a plan, he kept his plan secret, the plan was to save the entire world through Christ and send his son for salvation, and that plan was kept secret for a period of time until Jesus came, rose from the dead, and then the spirit was poured out upon the holy apostles and prophets to give them the revelation, and then they write it down, and then we read it, and then we know the revelation. And that's the unique role of these apostles and prophets. They had a very unique one-time role. There are no prophets, apostles today. If anybody tells you he's an apostle today, he's not, okay? Because the apostles were for a particular time. And I'm going to go into much more detail on this when we get to Ephesians 4. But I just want to say they laid the foundation. See, right now you have a foundation underneath you. There's a, there's a foundation here. There's a concrete slab that we're all standing on. Right? That's the foundation. And then all of these bricks and all of these walls were put up, and then the ceiling was put up. Now, if somebody were to come along tomorrow and say, hey, I'm bringing in an excavation crew, and I'm bringing in a bunch of masons, and I'm bringing some cement trucks in, and we're going to build another foundation on top of this build. Uh, the, we, we're going to build a foundation on top of this roof. We'd be like, you're crazy. We already have a foundation. We don't need a foundation. We could put a second floor, but we don't need a foundation. And that's what people are doing, and it's happening today, where people are talking about we have new apostles today. We don't need new apostles today. 
we have the apostolic writings right here. And that's what Paul the Apostle says to us in Romans chapter 16. Romans, Paul finishes this amazing 16-chapter book of the revelation of what God has done in Christ. And notice what he writes at the end of it. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret. Now he actually uses the word secret. Since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures. The book of Romans being one, the book of Galatians, book of Ephesians being one, where these apostles are writing this stuff down, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. The apostles' job was to get this revelation and write it down and we read it. So again, look at our verses. Verse 3, now by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, see you don't need a new apostle coming, you don't need anything more, you have the, the, the revelation, it's here, it's in the book for these people right now, the book of Ephesians, when you read it, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to whom? to the holy apostles and prophets, and it was written down and such. And so this is the plan. The plan has been written down, and you can read the plan. So what's the plan? What's the plan? What is this big, huge, cosmic, glorious plan that Paul has written about already? Well, notice, notice look at chapter 1 and verse 9. And we, we did a series of sermons on this one, but I'll just remind you of it. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, Having made known to us... The mystery of his will, so God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. So here's this mystery, here's this plan before the foundation of the world that God purposed in himself, that in the, here we go again, dispensation, it would be better to be administration in the plan, in, 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 in the uh, blueprint, as it were, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both are which in heaven and which are on earth in him. And if you remember when I preached on that, it, it could be better translated that he might gather under the headship of one all things. All things will be gathered together in Christ. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 15. Paul opened it up a little bit further to include the Gentiles, and he says this. He says, "...having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself..." one new man or humanity from the two and thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Notice here that the plan that was kept hidden and now is revealed is that God is doing something cosmic and worldwide. He is bringing all of these people in to one in Christ Jesus. He is creating one new humanity from Jew and Gentile. He, he, in the Old Testament, he worked exclusively with Israel. And through the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the promises that were given through to David and the promises that were given through the prophets, it was very exclusive Israel. The, 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 the priestship, the, the, the temple, all that God had developed there preparing for the coming of Messiah, 
All of that was exclusive. But with the coming of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the plan then gets revealed to the holy apostles, to the apostles and to the prophets this. God is exploding this thing. God is exploding this thing, and he is going to center everything upon Christ. And the desire that God has and what God is doing and what the plan is, is to spread this gospel into the whole world, that the Gentiles and all around the world will come to be one humanity, one people, one people of God. And there will eventually be a new heavens and a new earth. And this is the plan. And Paul is there to announce, you are in, you are in. And see, he's already started that. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near. Now, he's going to repeat that very similar thing with the very next phrase in our section that we're studying. So verse 5, he talks about this secret plan that now has been opened up and the apostles are revealing it. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, let me, let me kind of help you to feel that verse the way Paul actually wrote it. It loses a little bit in translation. Let me, let me, let me, let me give you a, just a little bit of grammar here to help you to feel this. Paul uses three words here. They're like bullet points. Bam, bam, bam. And they start with a prefix, and it's the Greek word soon, S-U-N, okay? But that word can take on a, a lot of different vocabulary, like it can be S-U-M, it can be S-Y-M, it can be all these. But whenever, and that word soon means together or with, a corporate thing. And then when that's attached to a word, then it means we all experience this together. And we do this in the English language. And in fact, our English language uses that same prefix. We, we spell it S-Y-M, but when we add S-Y-M to a word, it then gives you this idea of this whole group of people. I'll give you three examples. Symphony. Symphony. Symphony is a phony. Phony, P-H-O-N-Y, is from, it's, it's, it has to do with, with sound and such. And so with telephone, that kind of a thing. And so symphony is a bunch of sounds, a bunch of instruments working together to make a beautiful piece of music. So it's symphony. Symbiosis. Symbiosis. Biosis comes from biology and, bi and organic Symbiosis is when things work together, especially biologically. They work together. So, so it's used, this word is actually being used a lot it's used in our day and age. It, it can be used for plants that, that grow best together, that actually need one another to grow and, they, and, and such like that. Uh, bees are needed and insects are needed to pollinate flowers. So there's a symbiotic relationship there. And so sim means together biosis. The third one is this, sympathy, sympathy. Pathos is pain or suffering. Sympathy is when I enter into somebody else's pain. I experience, I weep with them. I feel for them. I'm, I'm attached to them. And so you see symphony, symbiosis, sympathy, those are these words. Now, Paul uses three of them here, and it's very hard to translate this in English, so it's not going to sound real, real, real clean, but this is what Paul said in verse 6. 
he said that the Gentiles are, and I'm, I'm just going to make up words here, to, but sim heirs, sim body, sim partakers. That's, that's the way he said it. And, and again, it's hard to translate that in English, but that's how it came across. And if you were reading Greek and you're reading it, it's like, whoa, sim heirs, sim body, sim partakers. You Gentiles are a part of the airship. You Gentiles are a part of the body. You Gentiles are a part of the partakers of all that there is in Christ. And that's what he's saying. You're sim heirs. You're fellow heirs. It's translated here. You're fellow heirs. And he's already been talking about this amazing inheritance. Look at chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, in him we have also obtained an inheritance. There it is. We have obtained an inheritance. And then look at verse 14. He talks about the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And then in verse 18, he prays that we would grasp how rich we are with this inheritance. That the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We have an inheritance. The big plan which is being consummated and will be consummated will be that we are going to inherit this amazing, amazing stuff. We are heirs now. What are we going to inherit? We're going to inherit the kingdom of God. We're citizens of the kingdom of God already. That's what he meant in 2.19 when he says, you Gentiles are now fellow citizens. You will inherit the kingdom of God. You will inherit the new heavens and new earth. You will inherit all that God has to offer. You will come to, you're destined for glory. God is going to give it all to you. It's all yours. It's not just exclusively for Israel. It's for you as well. You're in, you're in. Be happy, be blessed. I'm praying that you understand how rich you actually are. That's what he's saying here. And then the next one is this, sim body. And we translate it in English, of the same body. What does that mean? That means you are united to Christ. We've already seen this. You have been united to Christ. He is the head. You are the body. He's going to get into much more detail in this, but make your, let your eyes go over to chapter 4 here for a second and look at verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. There's this union between you and Christ and between you and each other because you are the body of Christ and he is the head. Then it gets really wild, really mysterious when he says this in chapter 5 and verse 31. You think he's talking about marriage, which he is. And he says this, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, that's that. We get that. We're on pretty familiar ground there. Then he says this in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The two shall become one flesh. And this is what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, you Gentiles are symbody. You are one, you are united with Christ, and you are united with the body of Christ, and you are part of the people of God. You are this. This is what, what Joe, was, uh, Joe Mork was, was brought into as it were today. The body of Christ, you're part of this body. And then Paul says this. He says, because of that, what is true of Christ is true for you. 
You are forgiven by the blood of Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You are so vitally connected to Christ that you will never be separated from Christ. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing that will break this bond. It is an inseparable bond forever. Does Christ have glory? You will share in that glory. Does Christ have righteousness? You will share in his righteousness. Is Christ loved by the Father? You are loved by the Father. Is Christ have a kingdom? You have that kingdom. Does Christ have victory over death? You have that victory over death. Does Christ have a resurrected body? You will share in that glory. There is an inseparable bond. Everything that has become true about Christ as Redeemer and Christ as the intercession and Christ as Meteor becomes true for you. Gentiles, you're in. And then he says this. You are partakers of the promise of Christ. You are sim partakers. You are partakers of his promises. All of the promises that God has made, all of them are fulfilled in Christ. The seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. The promise to Abraham that his, 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 his people will, will, will own the entire world. The promise to David of a forever kingdom. That in Christ, the promise of everlasting life. The promise of forgiveness of sins. The promise of reconciliation. And then the wonderful one that we've looked at already and we'll look at again. The promise of access to the Father. Look at verse 218. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And then notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 3. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And all of this, all of this, you Gentiles, have come to you. This is all of yours. And it is a lavish outpouring of grace. This is the theme of Ephesians. That grace made you fellow heirs, made you part of the body of Christ, made you partakers of everything that there is in Christ. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Now, let me ask you this by way of application. Why does Paul keep repeating himself? We've been three chapters, and all Paul has done, we're into the third chapter, is tell us how wonderful God has been toward us. That's what this is. That's all we've gotten in Ephesians chapter 3. It's just verse after verse of how wonderful God has been to us. Why does Paul keep repeating himself? Here goes Paul again. Oh boy, here we go. We're going to hear about grace. We're going to hear about Jesus. We're going to hear about all that's in Christ. Why does Paul keep repeating himself? Well, it's right that Paul would repeat himself. Because Paul was profoundly changed in the intercore of his being. He went from being Saul of Tarsus, arrogant, angry, violent, hateful, bloodthirsty, to Paul, full of joy and hope and gratitude and love for God. How did Saul become Paul? And the answer he would give you is grace. Unmerited love and favor. Infinite patience of God. All that God has done, grace has tamed him. Grace had transformed him. Grace had remolded him. And he had these rivers of refreshment flowing out of his heart of joy and hope and gratitude and love for God. And quite frankly, Paul wants the Ephesian 
and he wants the Ephesians to understand this as well. He wants them to experience this as well. He, as an apostle, is writing these things down that they would read it, that they would grasp it, and that they would know that it's all real and true and glorious, and they would get it, and they would live it, and it would flow through their life, and it would transform them. He wanted them to be transformed and to taste it and to experience and to find their lives filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with gratitude, filled with love for God. Now, I'm not an apostle, and neither are those other men that were standing up here today. They're not apostles, but they are your shepherds. We are your shepherds. We are your pastors. And I have to tell you, as a pastor, I ache and I long for all of you dear ones here that we love so dearly. We ache and we long that you would experience this joy and hope. And you would experience this gratitude and this love for God. Well, how, Todd? How can I do it? Well, the Bible is very clear. Ephesians is very clear. Number one, it needs to be a supernatural power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And Paul prays to that end. Look at chapter 1 and verse 17, the first prayer. There's two great prayers in the book of Ephesians. And the first one is this. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit, and I think that should be capitalized, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is praying that the spirit of God would open their eyes to see how incredibly blessed by grace they are. And that's what you and I should be doing. And so, number one, we need the Holy Spirit to work. Number two, it's prayer. We need to pray about this. We need to seek God for it. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. There's hope. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding grace? He's praying for them. And he's about to begin this masterful, amazing prayer in the end of chapter 3. But look at verse 18. He's going to pray that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of God. He wants them to pray. He wants them to seek these things. And dear friends, how are you and I going to be filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with gratitude, filled with love for God? You're going to need to pray and meditate, and comprehend, and grasp. You're going to need to work. You're going to need to do this. And this is what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, consider the lilies. And that word means study, comprehend, think long and hard about it. As people in my family know, I'm a big, I'm a big, big advocate of picking flowers. Those aren't real, by the way. Picking flowers and studying them. And so I'll pick a flower and I'll say, give it to one of my grandkids. I'll say, now study that. Look at that. And they'll say, oh, yeah, this is pretty, Grandpa. And I'll say, no, 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 go get it. Let's, wait, 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 wait. I want you to study that. I want you to look at the colors. I want you to study. I want you to think about that flower. And that's what Jesus told us to do. Consider the flowers. Consider them. And then as you're considering, you're saying, this is actually a masterful piece. This is, this is an amazing, beautiful thing. Look at the blues. Look at the yellows. Look at the white. Look at the way this thing formed. Look at what God is. This, I'm holding a masterpiece in my hand. What God would take the time to do this to a flower that's going to dry up in three weeks? How he must 
take care of me. That's what Jesus said. You're supposed to get out of that. You're supposed to work at that. You're supposed to make an effort at that. And that's how you will grow in grace. We, you will grow in grace as you take these truths and you meditate on them and you pray them through and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you and you roll them over and you think of what God has done for you in Christ. But what is the major challenge in all of our lives to do that? And what is the thing that breaks my heart as a pastor constantly uh, for, uh, agonizing over all of us? And that is we have constantly busy that's the biggest challenge that you and I face, and we have to get control of it. You know the story of Martha and Mary? And by the way, Martha was a dear, godly, lovely, wonderful woman, so I don't want to get down to Martha here. She was a wonderful woman, but she made one big mistake. When the very Son of God was sitting in her living room teaching the very Word of God, the Son of God was in her living room teaching. She was in the kitchen worried about forks and napkins and dessert and cups and bush and whether she had enough food and whether there was a, a perfect amount of salt in the potatoes and all that. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus drinking in the fact that the very Son of God was speaking to her. And see, dear friends, we need to be less of Martha and more of Mary. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem that all of you face, and I know you do. We are all so busy, and, for, and, and things are getting so expensive. And so you have to work and work and work and work and work and work and work. And it takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of effort. And when the, your work day is done, and if you have a job that just demands you hours and hours, or you may have a real big job, and that's a stay-at-home mom, in which case it's 24-7, 365 days out of the year. You have these jobs that are so demanding that when your job is over, you're tired. And you just want to sit back and chill. And here's the catch, dear friends, for us. We now have more entertainment options, and they are so huge and so enticing than our forefathers ever knew. You're dumb. You've come home from work. You're tired. Your brain is mush. You just want to, well, here's what you could do. You could watch TV. Oh, there's all kinds of really amazing movies. Or you could get into one of those series that, that leave you hanging right at the end. And even though you're sitting there and you're exhausted and you've eaten way too many chips and drank way too much soda, you say, ah, let's watch the next one. There's podcasts of all kinds of interesting things, hundreds of them. There's music. You have a choice of music that our forefathers could not even envision. And then there's social media. You can look into people's lives, uh, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and YouTube, and you can see all kinds of things, thousands of pictures of kittens, thousands of salads and, and casseroles that people have made, thousands of vacations that they've gone on. And then if you don't want to do that, you can go play golf or you can play softball, or you can go fishing, or you can go hunting, or you can go boating, or you can go shopping. And then, of course, there's picnics that people have invited to you, and there's birthday parties, and there's anniversary parties, and there's holidays, and there's just get-togethers for no reason at all. And then there's cookouts, but then you may have kids. So then, of course, there's kids' sports, kids' school programs, kids' uh, sleepovers, kids' parties, friends' birthday parties, Halloween parties, Christmas parties, and then, of course, it, it, with all of that, there's vacations, and there's long weekends, and then, and then, of course, there's the news, and news analysis, and which party wins, and what turn is the culture war taken, and then, of course, there's all the world disasters that you can look at and you have to check out, and it takes all kinds of effort, and it's no wonder that the dominant themes in our life are worry, 
anxiety, anger, despair. See, dear friends, it takes work and it takes time. And we need to figure out how to face this challenge and to spend less Martha time and more Mary time. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that, but I'm going to tell you this. And I get this all the time from people. Pastor, I have no time to have my devotion, so I, drive, I pray while I'm driving to work. I say, I hope you do. I pray all the time. I never have music on in the car. I'm praying in the car. But I want to tell you something. You're not praying while you're going to work. You're partially praying. See, because you're praying while you're looking at the speed, you're looking at the person in front of you in his brake lights, you're looking at the person in the rearview mirror, you're looking at this guy turning, make sure he's going to turn, you're looking at the speed limit, you're looking at your speedometer, you're looking at your gas gauge, you're looking around, and you're praying. That's like talking to somebody who's scrolling down on a phone, and you want to say to them, can I, can, that's, that's not it. What this is talking about is meditating, praying, getting alone with God, spending some married time, as it were. And going over it, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you if you do this. You're going to read scripture, and you're going to start applying this to yourself, and you're going to start thinking about this scripture. I'm an heir. I have been saved. I've been given, and you're going to start meditating, and you're going to start thinking about it. And you start reading it again, you start thinking about it, and then you're going to start just talking to God. Wow, God, this is amazing. I, this is true about me. Oh, you, the blood of your son was shed for me. Those nails went through his hand. For, you're going to start meditating. I was just going to think about it. And I want to tell you what's going to start happening. Joy is going to start coming forward out of your heart. Wow. And I'll tell you another thing that's going to start happening. Hope is going to start building in you. I can't wait to see you and experience this. This glory. And another thing that's going to start welling out of you, coming up as a, as a river, as it were, is gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you so much. And then another thing that will roll out of your heart, like a refreshing river, is love for God. I love you, God. And then your devotions is over and you start going through life, but that's not going to all dissipate. And the next time you get together and spend some merry time with God, you're going you're you're to build on that. And the, the hope is going to get bigger. And the joy is going to get deeper and richer. And the love and the gratitude is going to join. And then day... After day, after day, after month, after month, your joy is going to grow. Your hope is going to grow. Your love for God is going to grow. And guess what it's going to do? It's going to elbow out your anxieties, your depression, your anger, your despair. And you're going to know the grace of God in your life. This is the passion of the Apostle Paul. This is why he wrote Ephesians. This is the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. This is our passion as pastors and shepherds for you and for, and for God's people here. Oh, dear ones, please, start today figuring out how you can eke out. I don't care if it's five minutes. Let it grow from there. Eking out some alone time with God to do the blessed work of meditation and prayer. This is why sermons are important. Bible studies during the week are important to help reorient us. Find this time. Moms, I know you're sitting here thinking, how can I do this? God will give you grace. God has a special love for stay-at-home moms. He has a special love for you, and he's going to give you grace. And I don't care if it's five minutes, if God fills the five minutes with himself. 
if you draw near to God and God draws near to you, which he promises he will, that five minutes will, will satisfy you for 24 hours easily. Oh, dear ones, find God. You singles, you have a huge advantage here. You elderly, you have a huge advantage here. You have less responsibilities on you. You have more time on your hands. Oh, find the joy that is yours in Christ Jesus. May joy and hope and gratitude and love for God dominate and define us. It should. We're saved. We're saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you that you care enough for us, that not only do you love us and do great things for us, including the sacrifice and horrible suffering and death of your son for our sins, not only have you given us eternal life and given us your spirit, but now you encourage us to think about these things, to give you some time during the day to grow in them, but you promise also to richly, richly meet us and bless us. Oh, Father, I pray that every person in this room today would face the challenge of busyness, face the challenge of distraction, face it head on, and be more than conquerors. And may we be a people who know jo true joy. May we be a people who know you in this busy, busy generation. Give us grace, we pray, in Jesus' name.